My name is Michael Brooks. I am an adjunct professor at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Uh, any Michiganders out there? Oh my gosh, almost everyone. Okay, where are you guys from? Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. Everyone? Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids, okay, great. great. Chicago. Chicago, alrighty. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I also teach at, at Davenport University in Grand Rapids, um, so kind of back and forth between uh, different campuses. Um, my talk today is really going to focus on what Jesus did in the Incarnation, how he took on flesh and blood, um, how he stepped into the story of humanity's brokenness, uh, and how teaching writing, um, specifically creative writing, can act as an echo of that uh, as we step into the brokenness and stories of, of people around us. Uh, are you guys English teachers for the most part? Ever, everyone? Social studies. Social studies, okay. Still humanities, very wrong. Right. Art. Art, okay. Yep, visual art. Um, all in the same frame. In the back, did we say one more? We're English. English, okay, cool. Um, so, I grew up in St. Joseph, Michigan. You guys know where that's at? It's uh, not, not far from here. Um, and I'll just give you a little backstory. Um, my brother and I, when we, weren't, when we weren't climbing trees or playing sports in the neighborhood, uh, our diehard obsession as kids was to build Legos. Um, and there was something so magical about this, uh, just crafting worlds. Uh, and he was the far better builder than me. I mean, this kid would build Aztec temples, castles, uh, army fortresses, um, all always color-coded, always symmetrical. He's in medical school now. Um, so, uh, but my job was to build something different. Um, my job was to build the stories that we would put our characters through. Um, it was to create a narrative in which we could fold our plastic heroes um, to create dire stakes, uh, to create a lot of uh, the tension, and to give meaning and context to the worlds that he built out of plastic. Um, I'm convinced that this, this game that we played as kids and the hundreds of books that I read as a child gave me a love for story. Um, and as English and art and social studies teachers in this room, I would gamble that you also have that same love for story. Um, this love for story is what led me uh, to pursue the less than lucrative career of writing stories and teaching other people to do the same. Um, and so uh, this was very formative to my childhood. And I want to circle back to Legos when I explore you know, how are modern kids growing up? What, what are the toys that they play with? And uh, is this, has this changed even in not that amount of time? Um, are you guys mostly high school, elementary? No. Middle school, high school, okay. Um, no, and no elementary teachers in the room? Okay, well. Um, I, I have a friend who teaches elementary school, and he uses uh, a series of books by Lucy Calkins. Uh, has anyone heard of her? She's, um, yeah, I've heard a lot of things about Lucy Calkins. And, uh, we started talking about education one day, and I happened to poke through one of his books. It was Lucy Calkins' volume for fourth grade students on how to interpret character. Um, and I flipped open to a page, and what fascinated me was that there was a section about how to teach your kids to make mental movies, um, to, to listen to a story that was being read out loud, and to kind of imagine the character and form what was going on. And this boggled my mind that it existed. Uh, since when did we have to teach kids to imagine something? Right? I had assumed that imagination was a hardwired capacity 
in children. Uh, in fact, most of, I, I could never remember a time in my own 90s childhood where a teacher had to teach students how to imagine something. Uh, to the contrary, most of my teachers told me, please stop daydreaming, um, pay attention, and uh, this will be good for your educational future. Right? Uh, and, and so it was very interesting to me that Culkins was creating an introduction to imagination. Uh, why, why in the modern world do we have to teach students to imagine something? This is, this is interesting. Um, I gave my life to the Lord, uh, and I'll circle back to this as well, but uh, I gave my life to the Lord at the age of 17 when I really understood what Jesus did. Um, when I understood from the Bible that he took on flesh, he incarnated into humanity's broken story. Right? He, he didn't leave people in their present state of rebellion against him. Uh, in fact, he took on flesh and blood and stepped into their stories. Uh, and the power of this incarnation, of, of a physical manifestation of God stepping into someone's stories, uh, just has rippled through my life ever since the age of 17. It was very powerful for me to, to come to this revelation. Um, and, uh, but, but the more time that I spent in different Christian cultures uh, and attending you know, church camps or things like this, um, the less I, I saw this played out. Um, and I started to see what author Wendell Berry called a dualism. Um, he calls it a dualism between body and soul. He says that the dualism, I think, is the most destructive disease that afflicts us. And it's best known, it's most dangerous, and perhaps it's most fundamental version. It is the dualism between the body and soul. In other words, the separation of what is spiritual from what is physical. Uh, I'm not talking about spirit from flesh. The Apostle Paul talks about that um, in the context of sin. I'm just talking about the actual physical world. Um, when, I, when I understood who Jesus was, it was the fact that he stepped with flesh and blood into humanity's darkness. Um, but the Christian cultures that I, that I grew up in in my adolescence didn't model the same thing. Um, Wendell Berry challenges this notion. He says that the formula given in Genesis 2-7 is not that man equals body plus soul. The formula there is soul equals dust plus breath, or ruach, which means spirit. According to this verse, God did not make a body and put a soul into it, like a letter into an envelope. He formed the man of dust, but then breathing his life into it, or his breath into it, he made the dust live. The dust formed as a man became and made to live did not embody a soul, it became a soul. Soul here refers to the whole creature. Um, and so I think that we have a, a, an improper understanding of this in some of the Christian worlds that we live in, right? Uh, we've borrowed a lot in our educational DNA from Aristotle, who created a dualism between body and soul. Um, and the reality is, biblically, it looks a lot more like a trinity, right? If we're made in the image of a triune God, it seems really logical that we are a trinity, right? Um, and, and scripture makes a difference between soul and spirit. Right? Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, May your whole body, soul, and spirit, the trinity of you, if you will, uh, be kept until the coming of the Lord. In, in Hebrews 4.12, it says, The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing uh, joint from marrow, soul from spirit. And so the body actually, uh, the Bible actually makes a distinction into these three parts, but um, they, they fold together. And especially in the person of Jesus, right? All three of these threads, right? Uh, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Like these three things fold into the person of who Jesus is as he incarnates into the real world. Uh, but the Christian culture that I grew up in um, was more of a dualism, 
And it, and it sought to separate um, what was spiritual from what was physical and have those two things not interact. Uh, and this was a really dangerous paradigm. And I think one of the consequences of it is people didn't learn how to incarnate into the stories of others the same way that Jesus stepped into our own stories. Uh, Barry also talks about the danger of this. He says that the predictable result has been a human creature able to appreciate or tolerate only the spiritual or mental part of creation and full of semi-conscious hatred for the physical or natural part. This madness constitutes the norm of modern Christianity and uh, of modern humanity uh, and of modern Christianity. Um, and so, one of the dangers of it, like I said, I fear that um, if we live under this paradigm, if we're not aware of what Jesus did by incarnating, by stepping with all the threefold person of Himself into the stories of others, I fear that as educators we won't teach our children to do the same. Um, and, and we're tasked. We have a huge task. We're not just called to educate them. We're also called to disciple them. Um, and, and learning how to step into the stories of others uh, is pivotal for this age, right? Um, and so the question is, how do we, as educators, do, how do we teach our kids to do what Jesus did? To step physically and tangibly, according to these verses, uh, into the stories of others. I continued... Um, my career and, and began pursuing writing. Uh, I studied writing at Hope College and did some graduate work in writing as well. Um, and I began to understand this more. And, and over time, as strange as it seems, I've come to think of creative writing uh, or any of the arts for that matter as an echo of Christ's incarnation. And, and here's what I mean by this. On the surface, this is so paradoxical. Right? A writer uh, shuts himself up in a room for hours on end cloistered away from society, cloistered away from people, not physically in the stories of others, uh, but in the imagination, beginning to wonder, what, it is, what is it like to be in the shoes of another human being? Right? Um, it's strange. Like I said, the writer goes away and is not in the physical world, um, but he spends time imagining the stories of other people. Uh, and I found that as I did this, uh, as in my graduate school work, I would, I would spend eight to ten hours a day writing um, writing the stories of others. And I'm not talking about the dire Lego plots I, I wrote as a child with my brother. I'm talking about imagining um, the lonely woman in the grocery store or imagining the, the high school student who's really wrestling with uh, depression uh, or you know maybe the mid-20s girl who's really wrestling with her identity. When I started to imagine these people's stories, when I started to write them out, um, something happened to me. Uh, the Holy Spirit in me gave me deeper empathy for these people, gave me deeper love, deeper compassion. Uh, and suddenly what I found was that when I stepped into the real world with these people, I had a new set of insights and I had a new set of tools by which to love them uh, and by which to make known to them the love of Jesus. Um, and this is something I want to encourage us to do for our students, uh, to teach them through writing stories how to enter uh, the stories of others. Essentially, this is, this is the, uh, imagining the stories of others is the first step into incarnating into their world. And um, as a writer, I'm hardly the first person to think this. The American novelist Harry Cruz talked about the miracle that keeps fiction writers writing. Uh, and that's the miracle of the alphabet turning to blood. Uh, and what he's referring to here is 
what happens when a writer spends time crafting a character and this character moves from uh, a stereotype uh, or a predictable character or, if you will, an Enneagram number uh, into, a, into a person with nuances, into a multidimensional person with complexity. Um, and, and something happens in that moment, right? Um, I assume you guys are readers. Do we have favorite book characters <coughs> from, from literature maybe that have stuck with us? Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch, okay, great. I was going to say Scout. Scout, anyone else? Samwise Gamgee. Samwise Gamgee, okay. Um, but these, these are, you know, these are creations that people have penned on paper, but they become something more to us. They become real people. They become nuanced, multidimensional characters. Um, and, and what this does for the writer is something even more powerful, and that allows him to see deeply uh, into the lives and stories of others. Um, another person who talked about this was Leland Reichen in his book, The Christian Imagination. He says that there is no valid reason for the perennial Christian preference of biography, history, and newspaper to that of fiction and poetry. The former tells us what happened, while the latter tells us what happens. The example of the Bible sanctions the work of the imagination as a valid form of truth. The Bible is in large part a work of imagination. Its most customary way of expressing truth is not the sermon or the theological outline, but the story, the poem, and the vision. All of them literary forms and products of the imagination, though not necessarily the fictive imagination. Literary conventions are present in the Bible from start to finish, even in the most historically factual parts. Now, uh, when I read this, I had to turn off my inner, like, fundamentalist reflex. It's like, okay, he's not saying that the Bible is fiction, right? That's not the point of this quote. Um, what he's saying is that the, the capacities for imaginative thinking that are rooted in writing fiction are very similar to um, the ways in which the Bible has presented itself. And isn't this fascinating that this is the one book we can look at, we can say this is God's authoritative source of truth. Right? We know that this book is true. We know that in a world of books, this is the one book that is really going to show us the character of Jesus who's going to reveal the Father to us. And it's fascinating to me that that book is filled with poetry and parable. Why? Why does Jesus tell us stories? Why does he talk in parables? Right? Um, it, essentially, like, why does he... Why does, he's God, right? He could tell us, go have mercy on your neighbor um, and... and love others as, as you would love yourself. Um, but he fortifies that with the story, right? He tells us of a man who is walking down the road to Jericho when robbers came and beat him and stripped him of his clothing and left him for dead on the side of the road. Why does he tell us his story? Right? Why not just give us the command? It's because in that story, in imagining the story of another person, we are echoing his incarnation. We are stepping into the brokenness of another person and imagination is the beginning of empathy. Right? And this is so key. This is so crucial. Imagination is the beginning of empathy. Right? Um, and a lot of times our conversations about this in either the academic world or in the school world um, become overshadowed by a question of what is practical. Um, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about this in the context of STEM. Right? Um, we hear so many conversations about needing to prepare our students for STEM. And so it's a fair question to ask, 
why waste time on something like empathy uh, in a world where uh, our goal is to prepare them for these 21st century jobs that are going to be in science, tech, engineering, mathematics? Some of you are shaking your head. Um, it's because you, you already understand the value of this, right? Um, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to challenge the notion that the modern economy is not as equally built on the back of empathy as of STEM, right? Um, this is an article released by the Washington Post on October 19th of 2019, as in six days ago. Um, and so the, the article's title is this, the world's top economists just made the case for why we need more English majors. This is great. This is awesome job security for me. I read this and you know, started, started hallelujahs, right? Um, but essentially what they're saying is this. There's all these data analysts out there who are great at crunching numbers and are great at finding patterns. And what they're discovering is um, some of the people who understand story, some of the people who understand narrative more than data analysis are actually better at predicting economic turns and what's coming next. Um, and it's because they understand the human element. They understand things that the numbers occlude, right? Things that the numbers, uh, that, that are not present in the numbers. They understand the stories behind what people are going through. Um, and so uh, I'd like to make the case that the importance of empathy is, is, is huge for training our students in this present day and age um, and even on the level of economy, right? This is not a superfluous uh, thing. This is not an add-on. The modern economy is, is built as much on the principles of empathy as it is on STEM. Um, one of the first people to talk about this was a man named Daniel Pink. Uh, he wrote a book in 2005 called A Whole New Mind. Um, and the premise of the book is very simple. What Pink says is that due to the, due to the 21st century factors of uh, an overabundance of material goods due to an outsourcing of many of the jobs to Asia, right? I don't know if you guys know this, but India has more honor students than we have students, right? Um, and, and due to automation, which is going to replace 5% of jobs by 2030, um, and is also going to, it has the potential to um, interact with 60% of jobs, right? It won't replace 60% of jobs, but 60% of jobs will also have um, automatable features to them. So due to all of these three factors, Pink is saying that the way that we've done economy in the 20th century has to shift, um, that we are moving away from what he calls the information age, um, and we are moving to a society of creators and empathizers, right? Um, and, and Pink says that, that the American economy unfolded over a number of different ages. It started with something called the agricultural age. Uh, we moved into the Industrial Revolution. Um, and then in the 20th century, he argues that we were in the information age, where our goal was to become specialty workers in one line of work. Um, you know, and this is exemplified by uh, the, the maybe young person who got a job at IBM and worked there from 22 to 70 and retired, right? They did one job, they were experts at one thing. Um, and he's saying now something's changed. Because of these economic factors and because of just the overabundance of data we live in, we have now entered something called the conceptual age, where the goal is to make sense out of all of the information that we've accumulated in this 20th century age. Um, and so Pink lists six Aptitudes, And he says, a person is not going to survive in the economy of the 20th century uh, unless he or she can really operate in these six aptitudes. Um, and he said they are aptitudes of the right brain instead of the left brain, uh, and that success looks like melding those two things together. 
Um, those six aptitudes that he lists are uh, play, meaning um, he also says uh, symphony, which is like kind of the ability to combine a bunch of things into a whole. Uh, he talks about design. He talks about story. And the last one he lists is empathy. Uh, and this is what Pink says about empathy. He says that in a world of ubiquitous information and advanced analytic tools, logic alone will not do. What will distinguish those who thrive will be their ability to understand what makes their fellow woman or man tick, to forge relationships, to care for others. And it's fascinating to me that right around the same time that Daniel Pink begins discussing uh, empathy, that um, a lot of the top companies... Uh, who now facilitate and dictate modern American culture had the rise to power, right? I'm not looking at Google and Apple here as much as I'm looking at we consider what we consider social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, um, they're all coming to power right around the time of 2005. And I'm not going to make the case that the founders read Pink's book as much as they tapped into the same zeitgeist. They understood this need for empathy, and they started building platforms um, by which we could empathize, right? Um, Platforms, essentially, that gives us windows into the stories of others. Uh, In a 2013 publication called iGods, Seattle School of Theology's Craig Detweiler talked about how these, these companies made chaos, they made order out of chaos, and because of it, culture reveres them as little gods and gives them far more power than they should have. Um, and so while the premise of social media is, is based in the idea that we have windows into the stories of others, the reality is our young people are not using it like that, right? Um, Jean Twenge, anyone familiar with her? Okay. She wrote a book called iGen. If you teach high school students, you have to read this book. It is the most cutting-edge research on depression, anxiety rates, on technology, um, iGen. It's talking about the generation born between 1995 and 2012 which constitutes a lot of my college students, um, as well as a lot of your students if you're a high school, middle school teacher. Um, And so this excerpt um, is in the book, but it first appeared in an article in The Atlantic, and this is what Twenge said. She said, rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of the world's worst, or or the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. To this, the twin rise of the smartphone and social media have caused an earthquake of a magnitude we've not seen in a very long time, if ever. There's compelling evidence that the devices we've placed in young people's hands are having profound effects on their lives and making them seriously unhappy. Right? We have digital tools for giving kids empathy, but the reality is they don't yet have the character to steward them. Right? Um, and the problem is everything in culture is teaching them to do the opposite. Not to use these tools to incarnate into the stories of others, but to use them to bolster and aggrandize the self. Um, and one of the biggest uh, exhibits of this, exhibit A, is the selfie. Right? How many times have you seen your, your students take a selfie in the hall or something? Right? It's ridiculous. Um, in another book in 2018, Craig Detweiler, again, he explores the idea of why people take selfies. Uh, and he says that we, we want to be remembered, to have our presence noted. We post so many selfies for similar reasons, mostly having to do with this side of paradise. We want to be recognized, noticed, loved, and adored. So much of our online activity is about being seen, singled out, and affirmed. Uh, and this is true. This has become a validation quest for, for our youth. But everything in their world is such. 
Every single show they watch, American Idol, The Voice, these are all validation quests, right? Um, and so the reality is, even though these things are designed for empathy, social media insists that we're born to perform, to command attention by any means necessary, according to Detweiler. Such expectations can be exhausting and overwhelming. Profile management can feel like an endless and draining task. Our apps are always keeping score, always tracking our progress. And this is the reality of the students we live in today. They have digital tools for empathy, but what's happening is everything in their culture and everything about how we use those tools is not teaching them to look into the stories of others. It's teaching them to stay within the story itself. Um, Cornelius Plantinga talked about this in a 1996 publication. He said, in an ego-centered culture, wants become needs, the self replaces the soul, and human nature denigrates into the clamor of competing autobiographies. People get fascinated with how they feel um, and with how they feel about how they feel. In such a culture, and in the throes of such fascination, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but never disciplined and restrained. Um, and I think this is the, the culture in which we find our students living. Right? Um, Plantinga is also going to quote uh, someone named David Wells, who said, who also talked about this. <coughs> He said that in this kind of ego-centered culture, theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness, holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself. The world shrinks to a range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes, and all that remains is the self. And so the reality is the social media um, that our students frequent, that fascinates them so much, is all about, it's built on the premise, uh, it has the capacity for empathy, but it's built on the premise of looking at and aggrandizing the self. Or at least that's how culture is using it. Uh, and that's how what the people who are influencing them are reinforcing to them to use it in such a manner. Right? Um, earlier I said that imagination is the beginning of empathy. And... I first heard this from a grad school professor of mine. Uh, her name is, is Mary Cruz. Um, and Mary Cruz, <coughs> she talks about, or sorry, not Mary Cruz, Mary Helen Stefaniak. Uh, she's, she's a novelist, and she's writing a book about virtual reality. Um, and what she said is, in virtual reality, all of the imagining is done for you. There's nothing that you need to imagine, Right? Uh, the gamers have, have designed every aspect of that virtual reality. Um, and she said, this is extremely dangerous if it's true that imagination is the beginning of empathy. Right? Um, Martin Luther talked, he, he talked about being stuck in what's called incurvatus say, stuck within the story and the circle of the self. Uh, and so it is so important that we as educators find tools to break our students out of the story of the self. Uh, and so Mary Helen Stefaniak, um, what she will talk about, she says, if imagination is the beginning of empathy, um, and virtual reality, all the imagining is done for you, is it possible that on the scale of a generation, um, the very digital culture in which it's enfolded is encouraging people to be less empathetic? Uh, and what does that mean? And what does that mean for the rest of us in that kind of world? Right? Um, the damage of social media, we can see that at so many levels, right? We see uh, addictions, we see rising rates of depression and anxiety, as Gene Twenge talked about. 
Um, we're, seeing, we're seeing eating disorders start at younger and younger ages in kids of both genders now. Um, and so this is, this is heartbreaking. But as sad as all this is, we have to realize that anxiety and depression, and I don't mean to reduce them, they're very hard things to live with, to fight with, to deal with. But essentially, they are diseases of the self. Right? They are diseases where we look at the self. And we, we tend to think of pride um, as, okay, pride is the way that I aggrandize myself and build myself up. Um, but I want to make the argument that depression is an equal form of pride. Because even though it's not bolstering or aggrandizing the self, the eyes are on the self. Right? C.S. Lewis said that true humility is not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. And so I'm scared that uh, even though that we have this paradigm for depression and we want to help all these kids, is it possible that the problem is they're looking at themselves and not Jesus, right? Um, and, and not the stories of those around them. That they're stuck in this incurvitous say. Um, we can give them all the tools in STEM to build bridges, to make hospitals, um, but if they don't understand empathy, if they don't understand how to incarnate into the story of another person, um, are they going to see the need for that? And are they going to be able to escape the story of the self? And how do we, as educators, teach them how to do this in a world where all of their digital media is encouraging them to stay within the story of the self? I'd like to make the case that um, teaching our students to write stories, to have them practice making art or writing stories or, or reading literature in the story of others, um, is one way that we heal this ailment in our society and in our schools. Um, and so, specifically, <coughs> my training is in, in fiction and creative writing, and so um, I, I, what I do is I have my students often imagine the story of another person. Ray Bradbury said that plot is no more than footprints left in the snow after characters have run their way to incredible destinations. Uh, and what he means by that is the books that really have stuck with us over time, the right, the, the song, right, the How to or To Kill a Mockingbird. These books, Lord of the Rings, they've stuck with us not because of their dire plots. They've stuck with us because they're characters, because of the story of another, right? Um, and so, what I have my my students do is I actually have them practice exercises in empathy, where they imagine the story of another person. Um, and so, instead of telling you about that, I thought it would be kind of cool if we tried to practice that. Um, so, if it's cool with you guys, I would love to use you as guinea pigs for an experiment in empathy. Um, and so, here's how this works. Uh, if, you have a, if you have some kind of blank piece of paper, just, just flip over there for a second. Um, there's a creative writing teacher at the University of uh, Madison in Wisconsin. Her name is Linda Berry. Um, she is a powerhouse of creativity. She's amazing. And um, she has a theory that people have writer's block, not, not because there's something blocked, but because there's a lack of movement. And so she has her students, anytime they don't know what to write, she has them write the word tick, T-I-C, over and over and over until something happens. And the theory is that if the hand is constantly in motion, then the brain will be forced to catch up. Uh, and then something will happen. And so what I'd like you guys to do is... Um, just start by writing the word tick on your paper repetitively. Um, and as you're writing this, I want you to pick someone in your life, someone that you know, maybe at an acquaintance level, or someone who's a student. Right? Uh, it can be real or fictional, but pick the story, pick someone in your life, right? someone you would like to empathize, someone's story that you'd like to imagine. 
Um, and I'm just going to go through some slides. And what I want you to do is write um, what, what it says on the slide or what I say. Uh, but don't, if you don't know what to write, just write the word tick. Keep that motion going. So um, first, tell me physically what this person looks like. Describe his or her physical appearance. If you don't finish these, that's okay. We're going to be moving pretty fast through the slides. But when this person stares into space, what does he or she imagine? What does he or she daydream about? What does he or she tell people? That she, what does she tell people that she wants? What does she really want? What would she never tell people? But what is the thing that she really wants at the deep core? What makes her angry? What's she worried about? But what does she truly fear? What pains her at the heart level? If you don't know, just imagine.
don't stop the pen either. When she can't sleep, what does she think about? What makes her experience shame? Finally, what does she do with her shame? Okay, Greenberg, you guys can put your hands down. Take a, take a breather. Um, what you just did, I'm convinced, is the beginning of empathy. You imagine the story of another person, um, and I would gamble. Did anyone pick a real person? Okay, maybe a student. I would gamble that if you saw this person right now on the street, you would have deeper love for him or her. Uh, that as you imagined their story, his or her story, 
the Holy Spirit in you stirred a deeper love for that person, that they became more human, that uh, it's possible that even if you're wrong about some of the things that you imagined, um, that you're right about some of them. And that in that process, you gain deeper insights about that person's life. Um, that you, you gained a better understanding of who they were, a richer understanding of who they were, and that you would have more tools and insights to love that person if you saw him or her right now, if they walked in the door. Um, and this is, this is an exercise, like, I don't care if you teach kindergarten, I don't care if you teach high school seniors. Like, this is something across the board that we can teach people how to do. Um, and all I did was I, I moved you guys in a funnel. Um, I have a, a writing mentor named Chris Abani. The man's absolutely brilliant. He's written more books than I have fingers and toes. Um, but he has a theory that people exist in a gestalt of emotions. Right? Uh, his theory is that when people use sarcastic language, it's, it's just a mask for their anger. Um, that that anger is just a mask for their fear. That that fear is just a mask for their pain. And that that pain is a mask for what ultimately drives us at the deepest emotional level, uh, and that's shame. Uh, and that's why I particularly had you guys work in that funnel. I started with the character's outward physical appearance. Um, I, I had you imagine what her inner life would be like inside her mind. But we started to funnel through our fears. We started to funnel through anger and pain, and we moved ultimately to this place of shame. Right? Um, and... Chris Abani, my writing mentor, is not the first person to think about shame in this way. Um, there's a prominent neuroscientist named Kurt Thompson. And Kurt Thompson released a book in the last couple of years called The Soul of Shame. Uh, now, this guy is seriously brilliant. He's a neuro, I think like a neurophysiologist or a neuroscientist with a biblical worldview. And so he's exploring the concept of shame. If you have a chance to read this book, it'll change your life, I promise. But... He's exploring the concept of shame from both the biblical text, like what he goes back to the Garden of Eden, that story, um, and he also talks about shame at the level of what he calls interpersonal neurobiology. In other words, how our brain works in concert with itself. What are the actual patterns um, in how we think? Uh, at the neurochemical level, he's convinced that shame and love are the two competing forces deepest within a human being. Um, that this desire to be seen and loved for who people, who we really are, uh, is, at, is at the war within every person. This desire to be fully known and fully loved, but also the fear that doing so would be absolutely crushing. And so this is, this is what's existing uh, at the deepest core of people. This is one of the consequences of Eden, is this, this shame moving in and um, competing for this force of love. And so... Um, the way, this is what Thompson says, he says, we long deeply for connection, to be seen and known for who we are without rejection, but we are terrified of the vulnerability that is required for that very contact. And shame is the variable that mediates that fear of rejection in the face of vulnerability. He's going to make the case, and this is how he defines shame, right? This is crazy. He says, shame is the fear that is, is the fear that we have been or will be abandoned because we are not enough in some capacity. Shame is the idea that we're not enough in some capacity, and therefore we have been or will be abandoned. Right? Either we're not thin enough, smart enough, tall enough, uh, intelligent enough, um, athletic enough, 
Whatever it is, it's the idea that we're not enough in some capacity, and because of that, people will leave us if they really knew what was going on, right? And, and you may think this is unique to your story, but the reality is this is every single person's story out there, whether they know, that, whether they know King Jesus or not. All right, shame is competing for love in every single person's heart. Um, and what, what our job as, as people who teach empathy, people who teach story, is to teach our students how do we have them imagine that shame in another person. And how, in the same way that Jesus stepped into humanity's brokenness with love, right, with redemption, with the promise of healing, how do we teach our students to see that shame, to really imagine it at the deepest levels, to begin to empathize, maybe in this writing context, so that they can physically, in their tangible world, um, in some capacity, step into the story of another and offer love. Right? Um, the reality is this is messy and this is risky. That people are not the stereotypes we see on advertising commercials or um, the Enneagram numbers or Myers-Briggs tests that we would reduce them to. They're much more complicated than that. Um, and so because of that, there's, there's mess. Uh, and so incarnating into the lives of other people is scary, right? Um, I spent most of grad school wrestling with the idea that, like, my characters have sin. The fictional characters that I'm creating have sin. And, like, my Christian desire to whitewash that all out of the picture reduces all of the nuance and complexity out of them, and it's not actually a faithful representation of who they are as people. Um, and that was something I had to wrestle with. I had to let my characters sin, and that was so weird. It was like, am I doing something wrong? Am I in sin by letting them do what I think they would do based on who they are? Um, and you can see how much they've come to life in that, right? That I'm even referring to them as independent of my own imagination at that point. Um, and the reality is this is risky. This is messy, but I want to challenge the Christian paradigm that what we need to do with sin is always whitewash over it and not look at it, right? This is not how the Bible handles, handles sin, right? If this were true, we would have to censor the Bible of the rape of Tamar, of the Israelites fornicating in front of the tent of meeting in Numbers 25, of a number of stories that are quite frankly disturbing. That's not how God deals with sin. He actually looks at it, and he steps into it, and he offers either judgment or redemption, Right, um, and, and our job is not to decide which of those a person needs. Our job is simply following the Jesus that we claim to follow to step into the story of another. Uh, and I'm convinced that this capacity is essential for teaching our students to be ministers of reconciliation uh, in a very dark 21st century when most of their generation is caught up in the cycle of the self um, and, and caught up in the story of the self. And so, and, and I really think that creative writing, simple exercises like the one that I just walked you guys through are, are practical tools that especially you English teachers can take um, and do in your classrooms, right? How can we have our students imagine the shame of another person um, with the hope of stepping into that with, with Christ's redemption? And so the Christian authors historically who have understood this the best, who have not shied away from this, this risky gamble, if you will, into the story of another person, they are the ones who produce the most imaginative literature. Um, take C.S. Lewis, for example. Right? <coughs> a lot of us are familiar with Narnia, um, but his sci-fi trilogy has equally fascinating characters. And One of the last things he wrote was called Till We Have Faces. Uh, it was actually uh, the story of like Psyche and Cupid. He took like a pagan myth, which is really weird, uh, and he imagined the story of another. And the, the book almost never talks about God, but I think it, he says more about love and truth in that book than almost any other. 
Um, and he so deeply imagines the story of another person, right? The Christian authors who don't shy away from this, right? They tend to produce these imaginative works. And this is what C.S. Lewis said um, when speaking of literature in this context and the risk that it is to look at the story of another. He said we demand windows, and literature is a series of windows, even doors. Good reading can be described as an, an enlargement or as a temporary annihilation of the self. But that is the old paradox. He that loseth his life shall save it. We therefore delight to enter into other men's beliefs, even though we think them untrue, and into their passions, even though we think them depraved. Literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. In reading great literature, I become a thousand men, yet remain myself. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself, and am never more myself than I do. I've heard it said before that, you know, you you spend a lot of time reading, you don't really have a life, uh, and I say, yes, I have many. I have a thousand lives. Um, I have a a thousand characters that are floating around in my head, and they're so rich and nuanced that I have better tools to understand people's stories. Um, And and that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit in me. Uh, But the reality is those those hundreds of books have contributed to that. Um, And so how much more is this true when we're we're writing the story of another? Not just when we're reading it in literature, but when we're actually fleshing it to life in a sense. Uh, What we're doing with this act of creative writing is we're beginning to echo the Incarnation. And I'm not saying that we're deity, but I'm saying that in the same way that Jesus stepped into the story of another, if imagination is the beginning of empathy, what we're doing when we have our students practice this is we're teaching them how to begin stepping into the stories of other people. Uh, And my theory is that that is going to massively have impact on them in a world where all of their digital technology encourages them to stay within the story of themselves. This is what Jesus said about writers. He said that every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Um, The old is a tested gospel, something that is true, something that has stood the test of time, um, has stood through ages, right? And the new is how that gospel unfolds in the context of the 21st century uh, in a world of digital social media is in a world of skyrocketing depression and anxiety rates, in a world of broken families and orphan spirits, um, in a world where we have fallen into chaos all the more, right? Um, And so the question that we have to ask as educators is how do we teach our stories, our students how to do this, right? It's, It's moving them into this place of imagination, right? Lucy Calkins has to teach kids to make mental movies, why? Because her students didn't grow up playing with Legos. They grew up playing Minecraft. Right? And you can make the argument that, okay, that still involves some imaginative capacity um, in, in how you build something digitally, uh, but the reality is they don't have a character they're imagining. Right? They have like a stereotype person that runs through this world and jumps and maybe shoots lasers. Or, I, I don't know. I'm not really into video games. But um, the point is this is they, they're not imagining another person's story. Their form of play has changed. And everything in their society is teaching them to stay within the story of the self. Um, Most of you guys in this room are educators. And 
The reality is if we, if we want to teach our students to transcend the self, to teach them to look through one of C.S. Lewis's windows, then we have to do whatever we can to teach them empathy, to teach them to come outside of their own story. Uh, I'm convinced that any of the arts, but particularly writing, particularly imagining the shame of another person, is going to be a practical tool that we can give them for doing this. Um, and in doing so, my hope is that the Holy Spirit moves in them, that they're better equipped to be ministers of reconciliation, to carry out the great commission of Jesus, um, and to bring light to a dark world. Most of you guys are in this room are educators. Um, it sounds like almost all of you teach in the humanities as well. And so I don't have to teach you a lot of this. A lot of this is very intuitive for you. Um, God made you with more empathy than the average person. There's absolutely no way you would work the job you do, the hours you do, at the salary you do, if this were not the case. Right? Um, you have more empathy than the average person. My plea for you is that in, in my readings about this generation that's coming up, um, and in what I'm observing in my classroom, I see a generation caught up in the story of the self, in the black hole of the self. And my encouragement for you guys is as educators, like, God, I was praying for you guys on my way up here to this talk, and God just gave me such a heart, like, wow, you are in the trenches. Like, your jobs are hard, you're probably tired. Um, and I just want to encourage you that what you're doing has merit. Um, and I want to encourage you to take some of the tools here today uh, and to teach your students how to imagine the story of another, to encourage them away from a digital world and a social media that focuses on aggrandizing the self, um, and to teach them <coughs> to be more than stemmers with a biblical worldview. <laughs> uh, if we hope for our students to be ministers of reconciliation, then we need to teach them how to do what Christ did, which is to step into the story of another person. Um, and while only Jesus is the word made flesh, um, I'm convinced that if we can teach our students to enflesh their imaginations, to explore the pain of others, to give them words, then we'll do what society is not currently teaching them how to do, and that is to see the other. So that's all I have for you guys. Thank you so much for your time. a couple minutes for questions if, if we have any. What was the name of the author of the iGen book? Ah, that's Gene Twenge, yeah. Um, the two books, if you really, right, there's three books I think you should read if you want to pulse on culture. Um, the two most relevant ones for dealing with students who are in iGen um, some people call that Generation Z, but that's not really a fair term, right? Generation X was what we called a confused generation of people who didn't know what they were, and we tried to just keep go down the spectrum, like, okay, they're X, the next one's Y, the next one's Z, but none of those stuck, right? Uh, y, we started calling millennials now. And Z, it's just not a fair term for them. So iGen, um, Twenge, it's by Gene Twenge, uh, 2016. I think the subtitle is something like, why today's super-connected teens are more tolerant, less happy than ever before, and what that means for the rest of us. Um, so that's, that's book one. Like that's going to give a lot of... What it does is it looks at longitudinal studies. A lot of people are saying, okay, um, Generation Z compared to baby boomers or millennials or X, these are their rates. But the problem is they're looking at all of those in 2017. They're not looking at what were each of these generations like when they were 18. Right? And so what Twenge does is she taps into a lot of longitudinal studies and finds that, holy cow, even uh, when these other generations were 18, they weren't exhibiting near the same rates of anxiety, depression, um, 
Every generation since the baby boomers has sought to extend its youth. The millennials and Gen X have sought to do that on the spectrum of adolescence. They've tried to en- enlarge adolescence, um, but Gen Z, or iGen, has tried to do that on the childhood spectrum. They've tried to stay kids as long as possible. They've tried to stay safe as long as possible. And we have a culture that is teaching them that safety is the highest value, especially emotional safety. Um, and that's super dangerous um, because uh, I, I spent... I don't know if this is on the bio or not, but I spent like a couple seasons as a wilderness guide in Wyoming. Um, so like teaching people how to mountaineer, jump off cliffs, all the things your mother told you not to do. Um, but it's like, if you, if you treat people, if you make them averse to any risk possible, they don't ever develop. Right? All they do is their anxiety gets worse and worse, even though their circumstances get better and better. It's totally a paradox. Um, so iGen is the book by Gene Twenge. The second book is called The Coddling of the American Mind. It was written in 2018 by, uh, I want to say, Greg Lukanoff, L-U-K-I-A-N-O-F-F, as well as Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Um, and that book's going to talk all about the culture of safetyism that these kids have grown up in um, and why that is a bad thing. <laughs> the book is The Coddling of the American Mind. C-O-D-D-L-I-N-G. Um, and... Yeah, those two books, those are super, super helpful for understanding um, this day and age. If you want to learn more about media, um, Kevin Aloka has a book called Videocracy, and it's all about the rise of YouTube and what that is doing to our culture. He is the director of trends and culture at YouTube, so if anyone has data, he has data. Um, that book's called Videocracy. Oh, sorry, Kevin Aloka, A-L-O-C-C-A. Might be Alocha. My Italian's a little rusty. Um, Cool. And any other questions? So you really don't play video games? No. Because you look like you. I know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I know. That's okay. That's always a fair question. When a college president asked me the other day what uh, year I was and what I was studying. I I actually teach in your English department now. It's kind of awkward. uh, So, well, thank you so much for your time, ladies and gentlemen. Um, And bless you. I'm praying for you. Thank Thank you for what you do. Thank you.